Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Hello, everyone. We are here with part two of the book discussion of Conan Doyle for the Defense by Mar- Margaret Fox. And we are here with Brianna still. So. Yay! Always a pleasure to be here. So, the first thing I have in my notes is Peterhead Prison itself. It's located along the coast of North Sea, and this is where Oscar Slater was sent to serve out his prison term focused on hard labor. Are there still prisons that are focused on hard labor? Is that a thing? I don't know. I imagine there are somewhere. I I feel like there is, but it also makes me wonder how it's humane. Like, particularly the description in the book of this place. Oof. I'll let you I'll let you go on. Yeah, no, it it's not great. It did have amenities for the inmates there, such as a library and some social activities. But it also had the hard labor aspects, which in this case were quarries and low rations and isolation. So it was right on the cusp between when society believed prisons were places for reform through isolation practices and the new social reform where you provide people activities and work and different things to help them gain skills and go from there. And wasn't there also a distinction between in the past when we believed it was just about sort of keeping these people out of society versus the potential for actual reform. Like, yeah. wasn't that, I feel like that was like a 19th century philosophical debate was whether you should actually seek to reform or just keep people out of society where they can do harm. You know what I yes. mean? As an assumption. I think that's a constant debate that goes on. Too of course, I also am looking at it from the American perspective where when Eastern State Penitentiary was established in the early 1800s, it was very much a reform experiment at the beginning where they had people in their individual cells and they couldn't see each other and they were there in the spirit of reforming them into better people through the study of, I believe it was through the study of the Bible when it first opened. Oh, interesting. I know there are a lot of really good books coming out about it. I'll actually have to find, we recently got one in just this week about like solitary confinement Mm -hmm. and the impact on like the human psyche in the prison system. I'll have to find that for our... uh for when you share the podcast because it is really interesting the stuff that has been written Mm -hmm. about it so the cells in peterhead prison were four feet by eight feet with a ceiling lower than seven feet they had a sleeping hammock which in my brain i picture as like a traditional hammock but i think it's just a bed that comes down from the wall yeah like just kind of sticks into the wall and folds yeah an iron table with the ability to fold that down And one window that was nine by nine inches and that had bars across it. Wow. The cells were also pretty unheated and there was a coal burning stove in the main hallway, but no heat in the cells themselves. So they had to try and get heat from the gaps in the door, which basically means it was unheated. The prisoners were provided clothes that were washed every two weeks, which... It mentions in the book that the gentleman who wrote that seemed to think that was just, like, an okay practice. Oh, so it, like... <laughs> I can't even wear the same pair of socks twice. Like, I can't. I know. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but I guess past times, different standards. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's true that they did wash their clothes significantly less frequently in mm-hmm. the past. They also had 
a description of the schedule of each day in the book. Where on page 132, it states that at 5 each morning, inmates awoke to the clang of the prison bell. At 5.30, each man got porridge and skim milk in his cell. At 7, they were herded outside to the prison yard where they were searched before joining the work party. Slater was assigned to the quarry to break granite blocks, hard like iron, with a tremendous heavy hammer, as he would write. They were destined for a new prison building. At 11.30, the convicts reassembled in the yard where each was searched before being returned to a cell for lunch. MacLean, who's another prisoner that wrote memoirs, a pint of broth of beef, bread with variations as to potatoes, cheese, etc. At one in the afternoon, they went back to work, returning at five when it was 14 ounces of dry bread and a pint of coffee was served out. And then he noted that that amount had diminished since 1917 due to World War I. The men could read in their cells until lights out at 8.30. The sleeping hammock could only be used between 8.30 p.m. and 5 a.m. without medical dispensation. And then the book also notes about the mail. The mail was rigorously monitored, and inmates could only send or receive mail at certain intervals, depending on how long they had been serving, which I found that interesting. Yeah, and it's it's sad, because I feel like you can tell that that's the one thing that gets Oscar and a lot of the other prisoners through their sentences, mm-hmm. I think, are those letters. Yeah. It seemed like the longer you went in, the more frequently you can get letters. Yes, yes specifically Oscar's time in Petershead Prison. Oscar was known as Prisoner 1992. He compiled his mother's letters into a little book as if it was a prayer book that he could read over and over. And him and his family wrote letters back and forth the entire time. It was difficult, though, as their letters were written in German, so they had to be translated before they could leave the prison or enter the prison. But he did write as frequently as he could it seems it is really interesting the translation because i remember it it was it was interesting how the book had pointed out that like if they couldn't be translated or if anything seemed at all um like out of place or or fishy i guess since they were in a world war they would restrict it which i find really like fascinating um because i know to this day prisons do still Mm -hmm. monitor the letters but i'm sure it was very different in europe at that time Oscar firmly believed that he was a scapegoat in the crime, which he was, Yes, but didn't believe that he would ever get out of prison because he put the blame solely on the police as they were the ones who arrested him and created this whole case against him. It seems like Slater was an okay prisoner, but he liked to talk and had a lot of opinions, which the guards did not appreciate since they were supposed to be silent he began to believe that the prison officials were against him. He said in various letters that he could smell his clothing smelling different. He refused to go to bed saying that the prison wardens had placed drugs in his blankets. He became mildly violent, refused to work, and his mood changed where he became very depressed and at times it seemed almost suicidal. He claimed that around March of 1911, the prison started to put drugs in a cough medicine he had been taking, which caused him to state that, this is from page 162, for 36 hours I was madly raving in my cell. How can on earth such a bad man as a doctor allow himself to play with my health like this? 
my nerves are total out of order through this drug, and that over my blankets, especially pillows, powder was spread the same as I had in my milk and cough mixture before. The symptoms have been the same as drinking my cough mix. Going through the book, it just seems like he's very paranoid. But then John McLean, who was other prisoner, who wrote his memoirs about his time, he was imprisoned during World War I and was a socialist. And he described a similar situation. Mm-hmm. So it kind of led a good bit of credence to what Oscar wrote in his letter. Yeah, and or, if you think about the look of regulation of prisons at this time, mm-hmm. it feels viable that he was paranoid in about something that he was rightfully yeah. paranoid about. Yeah, uh, John McLean uh, from page 164 stated that, I protested that my food had been drugged. I know that potassium bromide is given to people in order to lower their temperature. The doctor is busy getting the people into the hospital. They're breaking up their organs and their systems. Attacks were made upon the organs of these men and also upon their nervous system. And we know from conscientious objectors that the government have taken their percentage of this men. Some have died. Some have committed suicide. Others have been knocked off their head and in this way gotten to asylums. So it is possible that he had the potassium bromide. Yeah, and it feels like... This was a big problem, I'm sure, at the time, because I know that there was a lot of talk about, like, what you could do to prisoners. So, like, I'm sure Mm -hmm. it was assumed to be perfectly acceptable to, like, I guess they were thinking, like, not subjugate, but, you know, keep them well behaved and, like, drugging them with Mm -hmm. something that would keep them submissive and, like, okay, so that they didn't um, act out, which I know Oscar Slater did do a couple of times while he was in there. And then even at the time, just like, I don't want to say experimenting, because this isn't experimenting, but there are a lot of instances of prisons experimenting on people and Mm -hmm. giving them things, and they're treated like they're not really people when they're in prison. Yeah, and if it seems like Oscar first had experience with this when he had a cold, because he was having Mm -hmm. cough medicine, so if he had a fever with it, they could have just been, that could have just been what they did, or McLean said that. He is given to people in order to lower their temperature. I mean, hey. I mean, hey, you know, Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it. So you never know what they could have been putting in the cough syrup to try and help cure them. Yeah, because at that time, they just tried different things. Even in ads, you see that. So it's very possible. Yeah, it's like, are you tired from being sick? Have some cocaine. Yeah. It'll make it better. (laughs) Meth? Wasn't meth? Yeah, meth is in, to this day, in, like, Sudafed. Yes. That's why it's a controlled substance. Yeah. yeah. The... That could be why. Yeah, that could yeah. be it. In February of 1914, a prison guard wrote that Slater is, in my opinion, insane. On various occasions, I have suspected that he was the subject of delusions of persecution and, and hallucinations of hearing and smell. At present, he is highly excited and dangerous. He is extremely impulsive and not able to control his actions. He hears voices, he smells chloroform being administered to him, and he says I give him no treatment and am trying to kill him, which are delusions. And that's from page 194 and 195. Which, I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I think some of his concerns are valid. Mm -hmm. Some are probably his paranoia, because you can tell he was a paranoid man. But also justifiably so, considering he was put in prison for 
uh, a crime he did not commit. Yeah. So I think it's understandable for him to think that people were plotting against him still. Also, I feel like I don't put it past prison guards to act roughly, especially during this time. Yep. And especially yep. during World War One, to a German immigrant. It, it even goes into it in the book where he, it says he was punished more than the others. Right. And he wasn't allowed to get letters and his father passed away during that time. After 15 years in prison, Oscar was transferred to work in the carpentry shop instead of the quarry. But it still wasn't the best. So then we're back to Arthur Conan Doyle. So he was a member of the Crimes Club, which I found fun. Yeah, And it was a secret London dining society where they could discuss contemporary and historical true crime cases. He began to get involved in 1912, and he wrote... It will, in my opinion, be a serious scandal if the man be allowed upon such evidence to spend his life in a convict prison about Oscar Slater. We should have a crimes club here. That would be fun. Hey, if you have an interest in joining a crimes club at the Scranton Public Library, contact A. Loney at albright.org. I feel like even if we just made a crimes club, people will come. Yeah. I think so. People like crime. Yeah, exactly. I saw that. That was a thing I saw someone recommend. It's like... Uh, crochet and crime where it's like they listen oh. to a true crime pro- podcast and do crochet together and then at the end everyone talks about it. That's fine. Yeah. To get Slater freed, Conan Doyle worked from documents and he never talked directly to Slater, which I found interesting. He developed a relationship with William Roughhead, who had attended every day of Oscar Slater's trial and believed he was innocent. He helped Conan Doyle research the case by providing him with different documents and just digging into it all the time. Conan Doyle studied the news coverage of the crime and the trial to get relevant details from the case that were just the basics. This allowed him to develop a motive for the murder of Marion Gilchrist. Arthur Conan Doyle published The Case of Oscar Slater, which was an 80-page account of the crime and why Slater was innocent. He also examined the contradictions of the case. He kept the price low so people could read it. It's like the penny stories. Like, wasn't it Dickens who published in the newspaper and it was like serial writing and you would just like pay a couple of cents for a copy? Yep. And you'd read it like a chapter at a time. Mm-hmm. It's riveting. It's how you get the book in. they would just publish it in the newspaper. Well, yeah, I think, yeah. I think I'm blending things here. I'm pretty sure I'm blending publishing a newspaper with like penny books or something. I, I mean, both I'm were a thing. Ideas. Yeah, because I know there was an article in the Scranton Republican or one of the Pennsylvania newspapers that were, they were announcing that they were publishing all of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories and installments in the paper. right, yes. He was not a fan of Lambie, Helen Lambie, because she did not stop the stranger in the hallway. And he was like, why did she say nothing? Yeah, why'd you just, like, let them wander out without being like, hey, why did you just wander into this apartment that was clearly not yours and then leave? Mm-hmm. And he noted that that's a sign that she probably knew them. Ooh, yes. That is some good critical thinking. And then since she didn't do anything, then Arthur Adams was like, oh, well, I guess this is some person that they know, so that's fine. So he didn't do anything until everyone found Marion's dead body. And then he noted that... Even though Helen Lambie and Mary Barrowman said that they didn't talk to each other during the whole journey, they definitely had. Yeah. Because how could you nod? Yeah, that's a good point. 
He also pointed out that Oscar Slater never tried to cover his tracks, and that even though he used a different name for the Lusitania tickets, he signed his real name in the hotel and was going about his business pretty much in the open. And then he started to criticize the police because of the brooch clue, and that they just seemed like they refused to admit that they were wrong. And they just went, well, this guy seems out of place, so I guess he did it. He also seemed to think that the murderer had a spare set of keys to Mary Gilchrist's apartment, and that he had used a penknife or something similar to break into the downstairs door, as it was super easy with the locks typically used on them. So then he could just force his way in when she opened the door. Conan Doyle also mentioned how the assassin went straight to the unlikely room and not the room where the jewels were. He didn't really steal the jewels. He was just after paperwork. He didn't pick up the money. He didn't take the watch or rings that were laying all over. He just went right to the papers. So he speculated that it may have been the will that was actually stolen. And he pointed to the failures of the defense to poke holes in the prosecution for Oscar Slater being convicted and that he believed that Slater was innocent. Then we get into John Thompson Trench, who was an incredibly respected police officer and was awarded the King's Police Medal in 1914. He was suspicious of the Slater case and if it had been conducted in a just manner. So he just copied everything from secret police files that had been altered or suppressed. (laughs) That is so funny. Which is great because it actually helped a ton. Trench came forward after five years, was like, this is actually what happened, and revealed that Margaret Burrell, the niece of Marion Gilchrist, had stated that Helen Lambie had told her that she recognized the murderer and also named who it was. Conan Doyle then wrote on... This is a quote from page 194. With regard to Lambie, Trench is prepared to swear at the inquiry that he received from her on the 3rd of January, 1909, an emphatic statement that another person whose name I need not mention here was a man whom she saw leave the house. So there was a second trial, which I'll go into, but just to close out Trench here, he, after that trial, he was suspended and fired from the police force. And then was arrested on a false charge of having resold items from a Glasgow jeweler's store in 1914. But the judge found him not guilty, and then he went to the war front. That's so sad. You know, like someone, it's one of those where it's like, it's not fair that he got punished for trying to do the right thing. So the second trial. James Gardner Millar conducted the proceedings. He announced that it would be held behind closed doors off limits to the press and public. They would only be concerned with issues of fact, not with the conduct of the first trial, and witnesses would not be placed under oath or instructed to tell the truth. Is this something that would be prevented by the concept of double jeopardy in modern like legal situations? Like you can't be tried twice here. Or is that appealing? Is that different? I think this is more of like an appeal type situation. Okay. So say you went to the store, you stole a copy of Bambi and were arrested and put on trial for stealing. And they found you not guilty of stealing the DVD of Bambi. You couldn't then, like two weeks from now, be put on trial for stealing the copy of Bambi again. Right. That makes sense. So Oscar Slater wasn't on trial again for the murder. 
it just was seeing if there were things that were missed, it seems like, in this. And it also seems like kind of a sham type deal because, like, no one was under oath. No one really had to tell the truth. They were just looking into it. That's true. Nobody was allowed to watch. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. The person that Lambie told Trench that she saw was only known as A.B. during the trial. So no one has any idea who it actually was. Well, they have ideas, but they don't know for sure. Right. And it was revealed that Marion Gilchrist was thinking of altering her will and that many of her relatives believed that she had already done so. Beryl testified that Lambie stated, Oh, Miss Beryl, I think it was A.B. I am sure it was A.B. To which she replied, My God, Nellie, don't say that. A murder in the family is bad enough, but a murderer is a thousand times worse. Unless you are very sure of it, Nellie, don't say that. And then she said Lambie repeated the name. So they really did know. Yeah. Like, we know. Helen knew. Yeah, okay, so Helen knew. And this, and... Beryl knew. Yeah, they both knew. But did they speak this name aloud at the trial, or did they only say A.B.? I don't know. Hmm. It seems like they didn't speak his name. Okay. Because there were possible identities that mm. have been thrown around since. Right. Like, wasn't it the nephew, I think? Yes. So, Francis Charteris, Marion's step-nephew, was a doctor and taught at Glasgow University. He had gifted her the dog that had been murdered the night, like, a few days before she was murdered, and would occasionally visit the apartment. So, he fits. Yes. And this is who Arthur Corwin Doyle believed the person referred to as A.B. was. It also revealed that the police knew of his name, whoever A.B. actually was. But Superintendent Ord told Trench that he was convinced that A.B. had nothing to do with it, so to stop looking into it. So it revealed that it seemed like this was a massive cover-up. On June 17, 1945, Judge McKinnon would announce that he would not interfere in Oscar Slater's sentence. Then William Gordon sneaks out the note from Oscar Slater in his false teeth. I just love that. Yeah. How did, like, the fact that he, because he used, like, a capsule, right? And he, like, rolled it up and put it inside his teeth. I don't think it was in a capsule. I think it was just folded. Really? And it didn't dissolve against his No, it had, like, wax coating on it. Oh, that was it. The wax. That's it. That's just so cool to me. I would never have thought of that. Arthur Conan Doyle takes up the case again and writes another book. And brought back his campaigning to have Slater released. And around this time in the 1920s, anxieties around people from other countries kind of were lowered because the new anxieties and society came from the women's suffrage movement, socialism, and technology. Conan Doyle sent his book to Ramsay MacDonald, who was Britain's first labor prime minister, and also attracted the attention of many more influential people. On October 23, 1927, Helen Lambie was located near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and was interviewed by a Manchester newspaper, The Empire News. Or she gave an interview that was published where she stated, I mentioned the name of a man who was in the habit of visiting here. It is quite true that I did so, because when I returned from buying the evening paper and encountered the strange man coming out of the house, he did not seem strange to me. When I told the police the name of the man, I thought they recognized. They replied, nonsense. You don't think he could have murdered and robbed your mistress? I'm convinced that the man was better dressed and of a better station in life than Slater. 
The only thing they had in common was that when standing end on, the outlines of their faces from the left were very much the same. And that was a quote from page 222. On November 5th, 1927, Park found Mary Barrowman, who was, who stated, regarding the proceedings at New York, where I was confronted with the prisoner for the first time, I did not feel warranted in then saying, after my viewing of him, that Oscar Slater was positively the man I had seen coming down the steps of the house in West Princess Street, where Miss Gilchrist was murdered, page 229. But then she stated that it was her lawyer and not herself who said it was definitely him. On November 10th, Sir John Gilmore ordered that Oscar Slater be released from prison after 18 and a half years. November 14th is when Oscar was officially released, and newspaper reporters flocked to the train station to interview him, but Oscar still was required to report to the police station in Glasgow every month to check in because he was on parole after being released. Oscar was not happy with this, so he went to an exoneration trial. In 1926, Scotland established a criminal appeal court, so Slater had gotten a special guarantee from Secretary Gilmore and the House of Commons to get his case heard again. So it was. Craigie Atchison was one of the best criminal lawyers at the time, and he would represent Slater. It's reported that he never lost a case in his career, and public funds were raised to pay for him. And Arthur Conan Doyle made up the difference. On June 8th of 1928, the case began in the High Court of the Judiciary in Edinburgh. Rules were set in place that only the original witnesses could testify and only the original documents could be used. So this meant that Slater couldn't testify for himself. The evidence that had been found after he went to jail, including the statements by Margaret Burrell and then Helen Lambie's new statement from the paper, couldn't be presented. The trial progressed until they could deliberate on four points of law that may have been violated. On July 20th, 1928, it was announced that they had upheld three of the four points, but the fourth was a charge of misdirection by Lord Guthrie, who was the trial judge of the very first case, who basically told the jury to find Oscar guilty. Which is bad. Very bad. Mm -hmm. And because he did that, the case was overturned. Um, Oscar Slater was happy that he had won, but he had wanted complete vindication. This was a technicality, so he wasn't super happy about it. Mm -hmm. He wanted them to flat out state that he was not a murderer and he was not a pimp. And he wanted the world to acknowledge that. Slater also received $30,000 in compensation for his time in prison. That does not make up for 18 and a half years of your life. No. Wow. Conan Doyle took a little bit of an issue with Oscar Slater after this point. Yeah. Because Conan Doyle wanted to be reimbursed for his legal fees. Which is so funny to me. It's Why just, he cares about that? It's, it's a lot. And Slater refused. He stated that Conan Doyle could readily afford the few hundred pounds he had laid out. But what Slater did not comprehend was that to Conan Doyle, the issue was a matter of deep abiding principle. And that was a quote from page 244. So the pair had a massive falling out that resulted in Arthur and Conan Doyle writing this letter to Oscar Slater in August of 1928, that stated, You seem to have taken leave of your senses. If you are indeed quite responsible for your actions, then you are the most ungrateful as well as the most foolish person whom I've ever known. 
Now that I have learned to know you, I have no desire for further direct correspondence, but you may rest assured that you will be held accountable for your debts. Slater gave an interview where he stated about Arthur Conan Doyle. Did he not make hundreds of pounds by writing about me when I was in prison? Then he wrote articles about me when I was released, and he paid 50 pounds for each of them. It was good business for him on page 247. Which is a really good point. Yeah. And then Conan Doyle <laughs> replied, "This is, it gets so <laughs> dramatic. Conan Doyle replied that he worked for 18 years for Slater and that the books never brought any money to him. And Conan Doyle became even more mad when he learned that Oscar had spent his time at the beach going golfing, going to dances, and going to the theater. Which, rightfully so, he was falsely imprisoned for 18 and a half years. Yeah. I know, it's sad because I love Arthur Conan Doyle. He's like the best. I love his like characters and his stories. But he is way too much of the privileged Victorian gentleman mm-hmm. here. Like, it's true that, like, he did benefit. Whether he, like, made a lot of money from this or not, he benefited from being involved in this case. Mm-hmm. And it was work, but it was of benefit to him. And he was not the one who spent 18 years falsely in prison. And I also think it's this helped lend credibility to Arthur Conan Doyle still because he was such in the depths of spiritualism at this time that everyone started kind of thinking of him as a joke. Yeah, that's a good point. So it still had him, allowed him to keep some line of credibility. True. As a result of all of this, Oscar Slater would pay Arthur Conan Doyle 250 pounds. So now the epilogue, the theories of who killed Marion Gilchrist. So Arthur Conan Doyle believed that it was Francis. Francis always stated that he had nothing to do with it. Other people suspected other members of Gilchrist's family. Some think it was a ring of thieves. Some think it was Helen Lambie working with one of her suitors. Margaret Fox, the author of the book, stated, Any solution advanced 11 decades after the fact can only be the product of undiluted speculation. But that she believed that Helen Lambie knew more than she was saying. Mary Barrowman, years later, stated that she had not actually been anywhere near Marion Gilchrist's apartment, but her mother had made her lie so she could get the reward money. And then I looked up Petershead Prison, and it's now His Majesty's Prison, Peterhead, which during the time that Queen Elizabeth was reigning became one of the worst prisons to be sent to in Britain, and it was labeled as Scotland's Gulag until 1991. That's rough. Yeah. And then it closed and was turned into a museum in 2013. It currently has a 4.8 rating on Google. (laughs) Out out of five? Yep. Wow. Well, that's a good rating. And it seems like it has a bunch of mannequins in it that are just dressed as, like, prisoners or officials propped up at, like, desks or in bed. There's also one that I don't understand that has, like, a gas mask on standing on stairs. Interesting. Um, according to their website, a visit there is a fun day out for all in Peterhead. <laughs> Experience what a real prison life was like. Oh, that's painful. They Oh, no. <laughs> they have an audio tour that you take. Um, so it's self-guided. You just walk around with your audio tour. They recommend about two hours. And there's also a lifeboat museum on the property. Are you trying to tell me we're going to go to the Peterhead Museum now? (laughs) I'm going to go to the Peterhead Museum. I'm not against it. Field (laughs) trip. Okay, and the last one, Oscar Slater. So he remained in our Scotland 
for the rest of his life and made a career out of restoring and selling antiques. He got remarried to Lena Schad and lived under the name of Oscar Lechner, which is his given name. During World War II, he and his wife were briefly interned as enemy aliens, even though he didn't have his German citizenship any longer, and he was never able to return to Germany due to the war. Almost all of his family were murdered in concentration camps. Only about two dozen of the over a thousand Jewish citizens of his hometown of Breslau survived the war. That was sad. That's it quite literally so how she ends sad. the book. And it depresses me so much. Oscar Slater died in his home in Scotland on January 31st of 1940 at age 76. After his death, his wife Lena stated that Oscar possessed a good singing voice. He much enjoyed listening to music. He went frequently to the theater and the cinema. He was a great walker. He was also a great talker. After all the years of enforced silence, he liked nothing better than a good crack. He was a very generous man. He was forever giving his might to charities, in particular those concerned with the plight of sick or homeless children. And that was a quote from page 253. I'm glad he lived a long life. Yes. And I'm glad that he seemed to have a good life and was able to rebuild his life after he got out of prison. I agree. Because it is really sad what you, like, see happen to him in prison. Mm-hmm. And I'm still upset about his family. I know. Because they become almost like secondary characters. Because mm-hmm. you get to see in the book a lot of the letters they wrote to each other. And I'm like, oh, this seems so sweet. They're yeah. such, like, loving and supportive family that, like, root for him. Even when <laughs> he's in... And they, they say, like, well, once you're freed because you are you didn't belong there. And it's, like, so great. And so I'm so sad to see what happens. Yeah, and you see it go through generations because after his parents die, his nephews pick it up. And, like, then their children pick it up. and Yep. Yep. So it's it's very sad. So do you have any other thoughts about the book? I mean, honestly, I thought this was a really fascinating read. It was interesting because I one of the things I liked, surprisingly, about it is that this book makes you think it's going to be about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But in reality, he is more of a side character. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a little disappointing in a lot of ways. But honestly, I enjoyed learning about Oscar Slater and his story and sort of understanding how far the justice system has come and the the need for reform and how mm. important it is because this is really sad to see. Yes, I agree. I agree with all of that. I also thought it was a good look into the development of criminal justice systems. Yes, very much so. Because you do get a lot of detail about the development of crime theories and criminology and criminal justice throughout it that we did not have time to get into. So I highly recommend it. It is in our collection and it is available on Libby. So if you're an ebook reader, you have it that way. If you're a physical book reader, you have it in our collection and feel free to put holds on any of them. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or would like be interested in a crime club, Feel free to email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or feel free to call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you.